if you've if at any point in time pre-covid if at any point in time let's say there was a hundred thousand people that were full unemployed just you three unemployed not you six just uh-huh. so and then just to get get a sense of what that the implication of that is let's just say that we're going to place a value of the uh, of fifteen dollars per hour on each of those hundred thousand people and then you take that multiply it times two thousand and you get three billion dollars so there's three billion dollars that's not a value that's not being created in the kinetic economy. Ah, huh. interesting. Right? Every yeah. year, right? And so a lot of that unemployment is right here in Hartford. Like there's a lot more of it here than there is in the surrounding suburbs. That's interesting. It's potential production lay lay fallow. Right. Yeah, and that and, yeah, and that means that you lower the the tra- the trajectory for the future permanently every day that goes by where you have a hundred thousand people unemployed you're lowering what's possible for the future prosperity of you know the state welcome to activist nmt a podcast about nonviolent MNT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MNT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Chris McCardle on the politics and pitfalls of implementing the MMT-designed job guarantee. Chris was politically active in the 2000s and an early and strong supporter of then-Democratic gubernatorial candidate Daniel Malloy. Chris later joined the Malloy administration during its two terms, conducting policy research and providing public and governmental relations around economic development, housing, and workforce. While traveling around Connecticut in 2010 with candidate Malloy, Chris encountered other candidates at all levels of government. One of them was running for the then open seat for U.S. Senate, first attempting to earn the Democratic nomination and ultimately running as a third party candidate in the general election. What set this candidate apart was his unique policy proposals highlighted by the promise of a job for anyone who wanted one. That candidate was Warren Mosler. After the campaign ended, Chris joined Warren and his son for lunch, noting the fancy car out front that Warren himself had built. Warren bought lunch, and Chris bought two of Warren's books, The Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds of Economic Policy and Soft Currency Economics. The two stayed in touch, and Chris was introduced to the then still small community of economists and students of MMT. He soon spent many hours reading MMT papers and posts and learning key concepts like Win Godley's sectoral balance identity, Abba Lerner's functional finance, and George Friedrich Knapp's state theory of money. In April 2018, MMT economists released their paper, Public Service Employment, A Path to Full Employment. 
Chris used the paper as an opportunity to introduce the possibility of a job guarantee to the commissioner and staff of the Connecticut Department of Labor. Chris praises the authors of the paper for its acknowledgement of political realities. An example is how it considers existing prevailing rate structures in a number of states, including Connecticut. This is important because it avoids unnecessarily alienating the building trades unions, therefore increasing their chances that they will support the proposal. He's also proud to have made a small contribution to this particular aspect of the proposal. The other concept Chris and I discuss regarding the job guarantee is one I struggled to grasp during the episode, but became more clear of in follow-up conversations. The job guarantee as designed by MMT economists would be a federal law that is federally funded and locally designed and administered. This means that state, county, and municipal governments would design the implementation they deem appropriate for their communities. Chris remembers well the pitfalls and potential abuse of a government-run jobs program such as those endured by the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, or CEDA, of 1973. One of those pitfalls is the stigma associated to having a, quote, government job. What Chris recommends is that the actual hiring and management of those jobs be placed into the hands of, for example, nonprofits and public-private partnerships. As is already the case in areas such as for the provisioning of social services and construction of housing, governmental and quasi-governmental entities would provide professional selection and oversight while avoiding creation of large new government workforce and bureaucracy. Finally, it should be noted that in Chris's state of Connecticut, there is no county government, implying that the job guarantee would most likely be delivered at the state level. Where I live in New Jersey, county governments are more prominent. This episode is part one of a two-part conversation. In part two, Chris and I discuss online activism and also the concept of truth versus theory. MMT is not the truth about economics as I have admittedly often said. It's simply the most convincing economic theory to both me and Chris. Truth is an inherently subjective term and using it is therefore not conducive to encouraging others to look into MMT, let alone be convinced by it. We end part two by giving a rundown of our lists of important sources that we find valuable to pass on to others interested in learning more about MMT, both from an introductory point of view and for those wanting more detail. Many links to those sources and more can be found in the show notes. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activistmmt. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. Now on to my conversation with Chris McCardle.
you doing? You too, pretty well. Um, so, uh, where do we begin? You said you were in a social entrepreneur. What? You said social entrepreneur. Right, social entrepreneur. What's that? Well, social entrepreneur basically is um, your. I mean, there's a lot of different versions of what that means, but what what the way that I use the term, it means that you are engaging in enterprise, including a for-profit enterprise, but you've got a double bottom line or a triple bottom line. So you are in business to, for example, uh, end unemployment in Hartford. Like, hmm. you know, like to, to, I'm, I'm overstating it, but to, to sort of illustrate the point. So in order to do that, you have to be sustainable which means you have to have a profit. So the basic concept is you, you want to make enough money doing whatever it is you're doing so that you can do it again. So if you create something that is scalable and, it, and you're successful, of course, uh, at when it reaches market saturation, you've solved the problem. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, still listening, but yeah. <laughs> right. So, so the point is, you have to, in order for it to be sustainable, right? So, so you can't, you can't, for example, you can't say um, we're going to rely on philanthropy, you know, forever. I mean, that's a way, that is a model, and there's a lot of that going on. Um, but if you instead say we're going to generate value, and we're going to generate enough value that that it we turn a profit. And then we're going to keep be able to to do do whatever the thing is that we that we did. We're going to be able to do it again on our own dime. You know, we're going to we're going to pay for our, the enterprise using the the uh, revenue that we generate. So if you've got for example, so I'll give you an example. So there's a there's a uh, there's a woman named Jacqueline Novogratz, and she created a, a an outfit called Acumen, A C U M E N. And uh, if you go and look at the type of things that Acumen invests in, it's mostly in developing countries. And what they do is they invest in products that are going to address a large scale issue. So for example, uh, large parts of the developing world rely on like charcoal and stuff for cooking. And so they're, they're cooking it with charcoal and they're, it's often in there either in the hut or, you know, the, whatever their dwelling is, or they're just, you know, it's outside, but they're breathing all this stuff in and there's deforestation happening and so on and so forth. So someone came up with a, a design for a stove that was much more efficient and had a lot, much lower emissions. So you need less fuel and you, which means you, you reduce the amount of, of deforestation and you have uh, fewer health consequences. Right. Okay. And so you, you, you sell that to these very poor people, but you sell you, they can afford this thing, and, but it's still profitable. And once that product has reached market market saturation, right? What you've done is you've eliminated or significantly reduced this the issues that that this enterprise is out to impact, which is deforestation and negative health impact uh, on the people that uh, you know that use this product. Okay. Right. So, so how much of how much of this is like you're incubating new businesses as opposed to helping existing businesses? Right. So 
now what I'm doing is is bootstrapping things. So I'm bootstrapping, okay. uh, bootstrapping a couple of things, right? Um, and designing the business model as we go. So the, the difference, if you for if the definition of bootstrapping is, you're basically using funds from the cut from your customers to to get the business going. Okay. Rather than say going to venture capitalists or you know whatever. Okay. Uh, how long have you been doing that? Um, I. I probably pivoted towards this about three years ago. I was working for the State Department of Labor. I was part of the previous governor's administration, hmm. um, you know, as a political appointee. And so it, it, the economic development was what I wanted to be doing. And uh, so I worked for the Connecticut Department of Economic and Community Development uh, for a few years in, in the first term of the administration. And then in the second term of the administration, I had increasingly become focused on the human capital aspect of it. And at that time where that was residing in, in the state of Connecticut was at the Department of Labor. So I went over to the Department of Labor and started working on workforce uh, and so on and so forth, which dovetailed nicely with the job guarantee. Huh. And so I introduced the idea of the job guarantee towards the end of the, of the second, Malloy's second term. Um, who is the governor? The governor? This is the governor. The well, no, I was. I, the governor's name was Dan Malloy. He was the governor. He was the governor before the current governor Ned Lamont. But but I wasn't introducing it at the govern to the governor. I was introducing it to the department, sec the commissioner of uh, the Department of Labor. Right, right, right. Okay, and and who appointed you? You said the governor. The governor. Yeah. Wow. And how did how did he know you, or what? Uh, I helped get. That... I helped get him elected. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Um, okay. Well, uh, I mean, you've already said some stuff, but but why don't we start from the beginning, which is uh, uh, introduce yourself. And if you don't mind, if you could start from uh, your thinking before you discovered MMT. And I don't know if the, you should also say before you discovered economics or however, however that means to you, Okay. Um, if, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. So my name is Chris McArdle. I uh, uh, live in Hartford, Connecticut. I've been uh, a student of MMT since approximately 2010. Hmm. Uh, I have an origin story for you um, <laughs> of how I, how I, how that came about. It's probably early October of 2009, and I am uh, traveling around the state with the guy who would become the next governor uh, of Connecticut. Uh, I'm doing videos and I'm a political operative uh, in Connecticut at the time. And uh, I record videos of, of the candidate and record videos of people endorsing the candidate and I edit them and I put them up on a website that I created for, for the candidate. So typically what would happen is we, we go out and it, it was like this, this particular night, I, we go out to a place, uh, I get there first, I get set up and then the, the candidate arrives and he does his, his talk to the town committee. Typically that's where we were going to the party committees, looking for support going into the convention. And then I'd stick around afterwards because there would be people who were going to be endorsing him and I would record their, their endorsements. 
And a lot of times when you're at this stage in the political process, a lot of other candidates will be making the rounds as well. And these town committees, they meet about once a month. So you frequently will have two, three, four people there to speak to the town committee who are running for various things. So I'm sitting in this room and uh, the next guy comes up and he's uh, originally from Manchester, Connecticut. Uh, He's got his wife with him, pretty blonde woman. He's about, I have to say he's in his 60s. He starts talking and he he's, says he's running for Senate. And uh, he's Let me for, guess. Oh, I, I think I know. Go ahead. Run, <laughs> At least I know who. Yeah. He's running for the Democratic nomination for the Senate. He's running against a guy named Dick Blumenthal, who has been running for that seat for about 30 years, maybe 20, mm-hmm. and whose poll ratings, having been the Attorney General of Connecticut for uh, maybe two decades, are in the 70s. The... So I tell him, I say, look, I think what you're saying is really interesting, but you know, you're, you're not, you're not going to be the senator from Connecticut. Well, he says, why? And I said, because it's not about policy. It's that's not what politics is about. So we talk about this a little bit. So he starts telling me a little bit more about, about we should give everyone who wants one, a federally funded job at $8 an hour. And I'm saying, and I said, why $8 an hour? You can't live on $8 an hour right around here. And he gives me this look like it was, he'd never heard this response before. Um, but I, you know, and I'm baffled by this because what I know about economics is, you know, you, you got to get it from someplace. And he's telling me, no, you, you don't, you know, the federal government just, it just spends it. It, it, uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't need to, to tax first. It, it spends. I'm like, I have no, I, I can't like, this is making sense but it's fascinating and mm. so he keeps talking and it's like somehow it's very persuasive and finally it dawns on me i say are you a keynesian and he mm. says well except for convertibility yeah <laughs> and uh so this of course is warren mosler and uh so- oh no i actually oh i i did not realize that you know who i thought it, you were talking about bill sombrello i don't know who he is Maybe I have the wrong state, but uh, he's he's a I mean, obviously not Warren Mosler, but but he's a, an MMT federal candidate from the past two elections that was uh, like brazenly running on MMT. No, I actually am very surprised to hear Warren Mosler. Keep going, please. Yeah. So it's so uh, so I, we keep running into each other in subsequent things and I keep getting little snippets. And then finally, so uh, so he ends up he ends up seeing the writing on the wall and uh, that he's not going to win the Democratic primary. And he ends up going and running on uh, a third party line, which was just sort of concocted by people who weren't going to make it with either of the two major parties. And he gets, he ends up getting about 2% of the vote uh, in the general election. And so before he goes back to St. Croix, I, we connect for lunch. He invites me to lunch. He's there with his son. Hmm. And uh, he's got one of these, one of these race cars that he, that he's built uh, out out in front of the restaurant, it's just it's really neat. Now I'm not a car guy, but it's really neat. Um, uh, so anyway, so uh, so we have lunch, and I buy two of his books, uh, the seven seven deadly frauds of economics. I think is what the net title is. It's now available for free on his website, the Center of the Universe. This is the name sure. of his website. Sure. So anyway, so uh, so I read the books and we now have each other's cell phone numbers. And so we begin, we begin corresponding and I start talking about MMT, you know, in the comments on, uh, his blog, not his blog on the, on local, 
on on local sites here, like you know oh. the the Hartford Current or Connecticut News Junkie, or right. these these uh, sites that uh, cover news and and politics here in here in Connecticut. Okay. And so I start doing that, and so that means now now I have to uh, learn more so I don't you know embarrass myself. Now this just so you do a bit of a background what I was what I used to do for Malloy going back to two thousand and six, the guy who became governor in two thousand and ten was blog i was i was his blogger in 2006 and huh. and so i and I, i'm one of the people that uh was kind of very early in involved in social media campaigning like i was involved in the dean campaign we were part of the rapid response people and that sort of thing so i was i've been online for a long time so i really know quite a bit about social media and 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 a bit you know was there sort of at the beginning of it um, so anyway, so that's why where I was uh, showing up was in the comments of these of these news articles and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't do it anymore. I, 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 except for Twitter, I, I pretty much don't do anything online. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got introduced to it. And then as I started to engage in the public with it, I that's something I knew how to do. And, and to do that effectively, you have to really know your subject. And so that's that's sort of how I got into really diving into MMT. But it was also just, a, you know, just in, very intriguing. You know, the job guarantee is is really uh, it turns everything on its head. Like when you really start to figure out how we're going to implement it, which is what I'm currently engaged in now. So the, this all com- sort of comes together around the social the, the social entrepreneurship, you know, we have some of the highest unemployment in the country in this, in this, in this city. Uh, and so let's say that we, that Biden wins and, and we take the Senate and that by January, it's increasingly a mainstream idea that yes, in fact, we, we need to have a federally funded program for employment. Right. So the question still remains, how do we actually deploy it? Right. Because you don't want to do it with a bureaucracy. That's not going to work. And and you don't I mean, I've been in the Connecticut state bureaucracy and I've been in corporate bureaucracies or around them. Uh, and bureaucracies are an old, old technology that is not appropriate to how we live today, particularly post covid, where we probably need to, to stay distributed. And there's a lot of advantages to living in a distributed way. Uh, but we don't know how to do it really because we've all grown up with, you know, the, the inherited practices that come from the industrial era and bureaucracies. So it's 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 really crucial to figure this out, and it's really fascinating to figure this out. How do we? How are we going to actually deploy it uh, so that sure we get the money from the from the federal government, but we still have to we still have to get figure out how to actually employ people. So there's all kinds of 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 aspects to this that. Um, that I'm working in, uh, uh, that is the, the development of business of a business model and practices, uh, in a social entrepreneurial fashion so that we can, so that we can address unemployment and underemployment and, uh, and, and basically transform the economy, uh, uh, with the, with the benefit of the knowledge of macroeconomics provided by MMT. Wow, that's a heck of a story. No, mm-hmm. um, you say you're a, a, a couple questions. 
you said it, I don't remember the, your wording, but basically you said a bureaucracy is is an impediment. But the JGs inherently requires bureaucracy. No, it doesn't. I'm, well, okay, so I need you to define what bureaucracy means because in a JG, it's locally administered, which is, you know, it goes through the town council or the town committee, which, so, but I guess I need to know what you mean by bureaucracy. Yeah, that's only one possible way of it, of it being done. And I don't think it'll work. I think it'll be a disaster, just like CETA was a disaster. And it'll set us up for, you know, the powers that be to say this is this doesn't work this is you know but that is what the that is what the mnt job guarantee is designed to do is that right it's designed the 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 intent of the explicit intent of the job guarantee is to put people at liberty to negotiate their uh, to, to, to choose their employment and to negotiate their terms that is the purpose of the of the job guarantee but you seem to be saying, I'm not sure if you seem to be saying that the MMT as currently designed by, the job guarantee as currently designed by MMT is badly designed because of this bureaucracy problem. No, what no, no. What I'm saying is that that's one possible way to approach it. I'm, and my position is that's not a good way to, to implement it. It's not going to, it's not going to get us where we need to go. It, it, and it's not incumbent upon MMT economists or, you know, to figure that out. They're just, you know, that that's one thing that we could do, you know, and right now that might be fine. Right. What I'm saying is that what you really want is you want an entrepreneurially driven uh, employment system. So the way that I look at it is what when you have the when you have the, the macroeconomic grounding, when you have a theoretical basis, right, You've got you've you you you've thought this through. You've got a complete economic theory, right? So now you now you can say, all right, this opens policy space that we didn't have before, right? Nobody has yet thought in and created in this new policy space. So, like I was saying before, when people talk about, well, how do you implement a job guarantee? Well, where are you going to go? You're only you, all you've got so far is what we've already done before. So, yeah. We, you know, we, we have to deliver it using a bureaucracy because that, that's what we know how to do. But what I'm saying is that, that you wouldn't start if you start with a blank sheet of paper. Right. And you say, how how do I go about employing people? Let me not worry about where the money is going to come from. How do I figure out how to employ these people who, you know, there's the skills that they learned are no longer in demand? Well. The way that we've been doing the uh, the employment system is so completely doesn't work. And the woman in the Connecticut Department of Labor, who is the expert on how to use all of the government, uh, you know, career path stuff and all the stuff online you're supposed to use to find jobs and reskill and do all this stuff. Even she couldn't get the, that system to work for her own daughter. And she is the expert, right? That's how broken this is, right? So that bureaucracy is not going to get it done. I'm telling you, just not going to happen. State and local governments, and that's that's a, that's not just the state; that's both state and federal, right? Because uh, the, the the Department of Labor is in at the state level is almost entirely funded by federal dollars, right? So almost none of it. I mean, unemployment is funded by uh, taxes paid by employees and employers, but the job programs and most of what the Department of Labor in Connecticut and other states as well 
does is is already funded by federal money and it's and it's just not effective it's just not effective and again i'm not criticizing the state employees or anything like that it's just not built for today's world so you got to say okay we can't just keep shoveling money into that whether whether we got to do it raise taxes to get the money or not you don't want to just keep shoveling money into something that isn't getting to producing the results sure right so what i'm saying is that yeah, when we talk about, you know, the job guarantee, we have to say, have some idea about how we would implement it. And so the people who are, you know, arguing for the things that, that they're arguing for are saying, look, this is one thing we could do. All I'm saying is that's not the best way to do it. And in fact, the, we should design from the point of view of the state of the art because we had we have the policy space to do that. Does that make sense? Well, I... I... I'm getting pieces of that. There is, I'm actually am just missing the, your general point. So I just want to ask the question again, and forgive me if some of this is just you're going to repeat. I believe you are defining a bureaucracy as just government. First of all, is that correct? Well, no, there's corporate bureaucracies. They, there's, they're equally, you know, I mean, there's, do you remember the, the do you remember the comic Dilbert? I, yeah, I mean, I don't look at it too much, but yes, yeah, certainly. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's not published anymore, I don't think. But Dil the reason Dilbert was such a so successful was because so many people in working in a private sector corporate environment could relate to it. Okay, so it's politics in a more general sense as opposed to specifically government. It's bureaucracies of any kind. Yeah, okay, right. I understand that. Yeah. What I'm not understanding is, the, as I understand it, the job guarantee is designed by MMT, is federally funded, locally administered. Right. Locally administered, by definition, means that it goes through local municipal governments, mm. and they could they could hand it off to uh, nonprofits and I guess right. entrepreneurs right. and stuff. But I'm not clear on whether you have a problem with how it's designed, or if the design is fine such that it's meant to be you know, extended to whatever works for local municipalities. I, I'm not sure I understood that phrasing. Could... Yeah, I didn't understand that phrasing either. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I am unclear. The, the design of the MMT job guarantee is federally funded, locally administered. Locally administered implies local governments, municipal governments. Right. Now they could hand it off to nonprofits right. for some of that some of that job creation they they could hand it off to social entrepreneurs okay so that's what you're saying so you don't have a you're you're not objecting to any part of the design of mmt how mmt has designed the job guarantee you're just extending it you're basically just extending it yeah i'm 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 very focused on where the rubber meets the road okay all right and fair I, enough it, it's quite unreasonable to expect pavlina cherneva to figure out how to actually get this done it's not what she does. She's an economist. And you shouldn't micromanage it in that way. The whole point of and it she is doesn't. to create right. right. The whole point of it at the federal level to create a broad set of requirements such right. that there's a lot of flexibility at the local levels. Like as I understand it, one of the only restrictions, uh, aside from the wage, of course, is that you simply cannot be redundant with the private sector or the government sector, the jobs that you create. And that's that's you know, that's a very broad restriction that gives you know you have a lot of leeway as as local right. municipalities in that um <clears throat> yeah i mean that isn't even a policy that's just like a design principle right and that's that's the whole point of getting around these right not just the i want to say the criticism getting around the disadvantages of a federally administered 
job guarantee, which would I don't think would be a good idea. Right. And would also help as far as, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so what I'm saying is that is that that extends all the way down to the municipal level, the county and municipal level. You don't want government doing that. You okay. want the gut. You want it to basically just funnel the money and figure out how to regulate it properly. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. So here's where where my thinking went over time and recently is think of uh, employment as something that is in demand, right? So there's a demand for employment. And so if you're an entrepreneur, what you want to do is meet that demand. So this is basically a product of the, I think it was Minsky said, employing people as they are, where they are. Sure. So when you think about that, right, I've got opioid addicts in my neighborhood. It's like the opioid, the ground zero for the opioid epidemic in this city. And I'm told by some people, New England, I don't know if that's true or not, is, you know, like half a mile uh, to the west of where I'm sitting. Mm -hmm. Right. So if I had unlimited funding, in other words, don't think about the funding right now. How am I going to think about getting these people reintegrated into in, into society so that they're so that they're productive and that they you know they have an identity that's something other than being a junkie of course right yep. so there's people who are really good at that in fact i had a meeting this week with people who are going to do that piece of it in this this local uh this local enterprise that, that i'm developing so when they're when they're talking about interacting effectively with that population what they're saying is that you know people are going to opt in for different things at different times now when a bureaucracy tries to address these things there's all sorts of conditions right so you have to qualify to get uh into that program and you have to follow certain things so there's it's not optional and that's the way that, and, and it's not effective. It's, it's ineffective. So what these guys are doing, they're activists, right? So they've, they've created this, uh, this social enterprise. It's a nonprofit, but it's, it's a social enterprise, which they, they literally bootstrapped it. And now it's a going concern. They're, they've got a building and they've got employees and, you know, you know, they're making a difference. But if you, if you now, if you now treat these people, right, these are like the hardest, uh, people to get get a job like they can't get a job because they physically can't be relied upon sure right it, if you start to treat those people like they are very people. valuable customers and those are the people you seek to serve you what you what you're doing is you're starting to design for those people so that's really sort of the key in my view so the, what the job guarantee potentially makes possible is that we could start, you know, I'm starting there with, with these people because this is my neighborhood and, you know, this is what I'm interested in, in, in doing. And it's not specific to the job guarantee, but you can quickly take that idea and you can say, okay, now we can start to deal with, uh, you know, we've taken away monopsony. So now, so now there's an actual, uh, like a game we could set up where we are going to figure out how to incent entrepreneurs, people who have entrepreneurial skill sets, 
to go out and figure out how to employ these people who are being unemployed because of technological change, because of, you know, COVID, whatever the case may be. And so now what happens is you flip the whole thing on its head. Does that make sense? It's you're transforming capitalism itself. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the cruel irony is that that opioid epidemic is largely created by unemployment, by involuntary unemployment. Um, so, you know, you, you treating those people that have, you know, that are the most damaged, you're repairing the very fabric of, you know, of our society at the right. deepest level, at the cellular level. And that's the beginning of, you know, recreating, restarting, rebooting, you know, what we want society to be. Yes, exactly right. So the, the, there's just there's a guy uh, named Johan Hari. He wrote a book called Chasing the Scream, and it basically chronicles the scream. Failed. What's the final word? Yes, Chasing the Scream, and it was it, it's it's about the the failed so called war on drugs, uh. and he says something that since I heard him say this, I had never it had never really occurred to me, but but now I find it it's all over the place, especially and it's it's specifically it's around these people who are doing this work or effective work with addiction here in Hartford. And what he says is that the opposite of, of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Hmm. So when you start to think about that, it's what you were just alluding to is that you really start to re, you really start to reintegrate people. You, you get them re, reconnected to the community and they start to have, uh, relationships because a lot of what I, I'm not so sure that it's unemployment that it causes the opioid ed- epidemic. People uh, be, abuse substances for a lot of different reasons. But what's consistently uh, true is that whether whether there was a breaking of relationships that you know which could include uh, you know unemployment, you know losing their careers, but it could also mean you know f- falling out with their family or or, you know, any number of different things. Or maybe they started to use drugs and then that caused the, the, this, you know, this breaking. But it's, it's an in- integral to getting people uh, into recovery is getting them connected and getting them, you know, establish a different relationship to, uh, to, to, pe- to the community that they're in. That's just where I'm, where I'm focusing right now. Right. I'm doing it there because, number one, I think it's got massive potential as an economic development strategy, because figure that if you if at any point in time pre COVID, if at any point in time, let's say there was 100,000 people that were full unemployed, just you three unemployed, not you six. Just Uh so and then just to get get a sense of what that the implication of that is, let's just say that. We're going to place a value of the uh, of fifteen dollars per hour on each of those hundred thousand people, and then you take that, multiply it times two thousand, and you get three billion dollars. So there's three billion dollars that's not a value that's not being created in the Connecticut economy. Huh. interesting. Right? Every yeah. year, right? And so a lot of that unemployment is right here in Hartford. Like, there's a lot more of it here than there is in the surrounding suburbs. That's interesting. It's potential production lay lay fallow right yeah, and that and, yeah and that means that you lower the the, tra- the trajectory for the future permanently 
every day that goes by where you have 100,000 people unemployed, you're lowering what's possible in, for the future prosperity of, you know, the state. Wow. And that and that makes me think of uh, immigration. That, yes. you know, they're supposedly, you know, we have plenty of jobs, but there's too many people. So which means that we have to get rid of people and who are we going to get rid of? But, the you know, illegal immigrants and all that. And and that, that that switches it on on its head. No, they're extra potential production. Yeah, that, that that whole argument is is. Can I say bullshit on your podcast? Sure, you can say whatever. Yeah, you like. and that's that, that's ideological. <laughs> that's ideological horseshit. That doesn't. There's no. There's no empirical basis for that whatsoever. Those people. Those those people who come into this country. They're not coming in here so they can get on welfare. You know, they're escaping poverty. They're looking for employment. Right, and they're doing jobs that nobody will do, picking fruit. Uh, scrubbing, scrubbing stuff in the back of the restaurant. Like those are jobs that that people, Americans, don't take them. Well, I, I find that the most ridiculous part of that argument is who chooses to hire them. Right. Yes. Right. Do Do they walk into the to the to the you know to to their interview and put a gun to the guy's head and say you will give me this job and not give it to an American? Right. I mean, yeah. that's like a really really ridiculous. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, so there's no economic, that's not a serious economic discussion is what I'm, what, what I'm saying. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? It's it like, it's, it, I don't even bother with it. It's just, it's, it's just, it's just a, you know, propaganda. Well, there is it. one, there is one important thing related to it, which is climate change is going to cause mass migration of people who are traditionally in those populations who are hated, you know, yeah. immigrants, whatever. And that coupled with this, you know, this racist mindset or, you know, this whatever racist or whatever anti-immigrant mindset, you know, Trump's wall, all this stuff. That's what's going to kill us in the long term, in a grand sense. That's Mm -hmm. what's going to kill us, because if we shut if we try and shut these people out and let them burn in their own home countries, you know, that's where that's how wars are going to start. And a job guarantee is what could prevent that. A yeah. job guarantee is what could prevent, essentially, to an extent, to some degree, the end of the world, the end of organized society. Yeah, we're yeah. There's no doubt in my mind. We are in a very perilous position right now. A very perilous. This could this so far. I mean, we're already. This is something that you know. Last time we saw something like like this, you know, you might say was the Black Plague. Like it's that disruptive to to the social order. And there are those scholars of, of that era who say that it, that that in fact uh, is an important thing about that uh, it, it changed political economy. You know, it really changed the world. Um, the disruption of the plague um, did that. And I mean, I think it's hard to dispute uh, that w- this is we're in new territory, whether it goes really badly or not. You know. But we are we are in a very perilous situation right now because, uh, you know, Warren was talking. Uh, he was on a podcast. You should go if you haven't heard it. I forget what it was, but he go find go into his Twitter feed and find the interview that he just did. It was really good because it goes way into into the uh, background of how he developed the ideas that became MMT going back to the mid 70s. 
um it's really instructive if you're if you if you want to geek out about mmt you want to really understand and it also it also is you know i frequently i frequently emphasize to people like my one of my big points that i make all the time about mmt is that it's great strength is that it's empirically based and mainstream mainstream economics is not right there's lots of uh, setis paribus, ceteris paribus. There's a lot of, there are s- certain basic theoretical assumptions, a priori assumptions in, in mainstream economics. And what is maybe unique about MMT is that it really did start with Warren figuring stuff out so he could, you know, do his job. Right, sure. Um, that, that to me, I believe that that's, uh, I think that that's the instru- institutional element of MMT, where institutional to me is just, you need to understand how things actually work, the truth of institutions, which Mm -hmm. I've only recently learned about. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is the element of institutionalism where they actually, you know, Scott Fallweiler and Stephanie Kelton have gone into these institutions, the Fed and uh, and Eric Timoyne, to actually figure out how they work, where MMT is the only one that has done that. And mainstream can't acknowledge that, because if they do, then everything they believe in is going to fall apart. Yeah, it is. And it is their a paychecks pro- go away. Yeah, it is a profound uh, professional threat. There's th- that. That I think that's a f- fair statement. Right. Um, okay. Uh, so you said that you're. Can, can you can you talk more about you are specifically you're involved in? Remind me of the state you're in, please. Massachusetts. Connecticut. Connecticut. Forgive me. Uh, so you're in you're in Connecticut state government and in no, no. labor. Oh, you mean going back in time? Oh, so you were. Oh, you were. Okay, I'm yeah. sorry. I, I'm yeah. No, I left about uh, let's see, was it three years ago? Two years. Okay, ago. you said you said something to the extent of you were in the Department of Labor for for Connecticut, right. and that you were proposing job guarantee related stuff. Uh, I was trying to inter- I was trying to introduce the so. I was there at about the time that the job guarantee paper that Stephanie and Scott and uh, Pavlina and a couple of others published in, I think it was 2018. April of 2018, yeah. Yeah, 2018. And so I had uh, I'd been actually talking with Warren about something, and he had suggested I talk to Stephanie. So Stephanie and I got on the phone in February, and Stephanie is uh, astonishingly, it was, like she didn't say one thing that wasn't, dead on right about the politics and and how they should make this argument Um, and so i actually got to participate in a very small way in the final product that that paper not and not as an economist but in terms of the politics and the and how to present the policy um idea Uh, the crucial thing was that that and this is really important if you're going to call yourself an activist and you want to be effective you have to respect the the reality the to the institutional situation you have to understand it right so a lot of activists are like you know mnt is the truth which is not it's a theory mnt is the answer which is not true it is a theory um and you know burn your bust you know like you know, that's great. I understand the enthusiasm. I used to, when I was young, I was that kind of guy. The The sooner you realize that that's not going to succeed almost ever 
And if it does, it's not because you were so steadfast. It's for some other circumstantial reasons that it worked out. You got, and then take your inspiration from the, from the guy, the, the, the seminal author of, of this, how he came up with it and how the, it's been studied by the scholars, right? By the people at the center of the scholarship that has built the, the theory, the, the, a complete economic theory. So what do they do? They, they understand how things actually work. They actually engage with the reality of how things work. And then they proceed from there and they look for theory that helps to explain and, and flesh out what they're observing and what they're, what they've documented. Does that make sense? It does, but I, I don't feel like you've made the whole point or I missed. Well, you so said... far, but so far it made sense. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. sure okay. Sure. Okay. So that is so, all right. So now let's turn back. So what happened was, you know, there, I, as I recall, there was a, uh, the idea was that we were just going to have a federal infrastructure program and everyone was going to get paid, you know, whatever the wage was going to be, $15, or whatever it was going to be. And that was going to be how we would implement a job guarantee. And I think this was basically Bernie's position at the time. And the problem with that is, is that the building trades unions are going to go absolutely apeshit. You know, it'll be dead on arrival. And this is something that activists really need to understand. You've got to, you've got to get that. There are people who are your natural allies and you can't piss them off unnecessarily. You got to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, there are vested interests and they are fight. And in some cases they've already won. Like we've got a prevailing wage structure in Connecticut. Uh, you know, you don't want to mess with that. And the people that, you know, are invested in it, the, the you know, the, the building trades, you know, they're not going to let you. Right. So it's really important that activists under, uh, start to start with that, start with, OK, what am I really dealing with here? What's the institutional reality? And you have to always take that into account as you learn and as you go along. That sounds and more then, like political reality. No, it's well, everything is it, it doesn't matter what you're doing. There's if you want to call it politics, that's political reality, no matter where you're going. No matter well, what I, I mean, but I just mean to distinguish between how the Treasury actually interacts with the Fed. That's institutional reality. OK, that, I mean, I know that there's political laws that have been imposed on it, but still, that's like that's institutional reality. What you seem right. to be saying, like how unions are going to defend their position and stuff. But I see that more right. as political than institutional. But yeah. but so it's the same thing, though, if you're going to be an entrepreneur. Right. So if I'm going to be a social entrepreneur, I want to make a difference in my community. Well, in Hartford. There are tons of projects of different organizations and individuals doing all kinds of work. And it's a characteristic of, of our culture in Hartford that everybody is, holds very tightly to their piece of turf and defends it and is very interested and that, that, that they talk about their, how, bad, how bad they are at collaborating, but they never actually collaborate. Okay. Okay. So when I got to Hartford, that was the first thing I learned. And now normally in my past, what I would have attempted to do was to persuade people to not operate that way, right? That does not work, right? You, you don't go to an organization and say, you know what you guys are doing wrong? <laughs> they don't want to know. Like they don't want to listen to you. What do you do instead? You say, okay, where's their space where there's nobody doing something that I could, that I could make a difference. Right. So can you, can you fit this, can you put, fit this part of your story? Uh, I believe you were talking about that Bernie's infrastructure policy was bad politics because he was not considering unions related to that. Field. Well, the Is way, right? the, the way that, the, that I understood it from talking to Warren, I think it was Warren that told me this 
was, was that it was just this across the board proposal. Now there's, there's many states where there is no prevailing rate. Okay. There is no prevailing wage structure. There's no, it's just the federal wage and it's just wide open. So you can pay anybody who, you know, whatever the local rules are, you, you pay a tin knock or $7 and, or whatever the current minimum federal minimum is. If you can get somebody to do the job at that price, you could pay them that. You can't do that in places like New Jersey, New York, Connecticut. There's probably, I'd say there's at least 20 states where there is some form of state level prevailing rate uh, structure, right? So you, it's, pol it's policy, it's law. And it means, it, yeah, and, it's, and, and it applies to anything where there's, this is a little bit too general, but for it's, it's close enough. Any any construction that involves uh, state or federal money has to be you have to pay prevailing rate. Private sector doesn't, but the right. but the public does. Okay. So you don't want to you don't want to mess with that. You don't want to mess with it for two reasons. It seems to me. First is yeah, political. Like if you're trying to get a policy through, yeah, it's you're definitely talking about uh, explicitly. You're talking about politics. By definition, policy, politics, the polis you're talking about. Right? I don't know why that's a surprising connection, but yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. So um, when you're talking about that that aspect of it, yes, it's a split. But also what we want is to have a higher wage set so that people's investment in skills is rewarded. We, we don't want to continue to tell people, hey, go to college, get this skill set. And by the time they come out with 100000 or $200,000 of debt and a skill set that there's now too much of it, there's just not enough demand to employ them. And they go and get a job paying something that they could have gone and gotten instead of going to college. They, like their degree has done, done nothing for them. Their training has done nothing for them and they're in debt, right? So, you know, I... I, I this is so such a rich topic, and I I can go in so many different directions with it. So well, feel free feel free to interrupt me. Yeah, know? no, okay. So yeah. so yeah, no. This this is you're an easy interviewer because you have a lot to say. This is great. Um, I have seen Bernie's policies as being very considerate to the audiences. That like he brings a lot of people to the table to create his policy. In my view, like like for mm -hmm. example, his justice his criminal justice platform um, seems to really have brought a lot of people who are affected by criminal justice to the table to create that policy. Yes. You seem to be suggesting that, for example, his infrastructure policy. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not having a broad conversation about Bernie. I'd vote for Bernie in a heartbeat. No, no, that's that, that, but no, not, I'm trying to right. understand. You said you yeah. were saying that his infrastructure policy. No, no. Was what I was not, saying, what I, what, I, what I was saying was that the, the, the part of the discussion that I got involved in around that, this, this particular thing had to do with, the wage the messing with or the prevailing rate like you can't you can't say we're going to have any federal project if you're if you're going to implement a job guarantee by you know it's not instead of a green new deal but but you know spending on infrastructure right and say we're going to employ all these people on infrastructure projects and we're going to pay them $15 an hour okay or whatever it is right that's not going to work as a policy proposal. Right. And that's it, what I'm asking. What would you, right. what, what are you recommending? 
Well, what they came out with is is entirely is perfect. I mean, it, it that that paper is you know if you haven't read that paper, read that paper. Oh, the April two thousand eighteen paper is what. Okay, that right. is what you. That okay. was the context of all that discussion about. All right, I got it. I got it. I got it. So, so you said you had an influence on that paper. What what was specifically just just that, that just just that I, I you know actually Stephanie already had figured it out. I was just I was just you know my background is politics and government and the private sector. Right, I'm okay. not an economist. Okay. I was just I was just validating what 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 Stephanie said. So, I mean, it was it was incredible. She and I had a conversation, and then we had a subsequent conversation with a few other uh, people that were involved with that paper. Um, but the the thing that really was astonishing to me was this conversation with Stephanie was that she got everything right. She was like, she's a public face for a reason. Yeah, I mean, she she uh, her grasp of the ins and outs of politics like as a at the level of a political operative was astonishingly good it was astonishingly good and so she had figured it she had already figured all this out i was just basically saying yeah that's exactly right if you guys do if you guys put that out and you don't honor the established structure you know you're you know the building trades are just going to kill it okay the nfl cio will kill it so do me a favor just review what specifically that was that impressed you that that you validated that is now in the paper. yeah so stephanie stephanie has in addition to being uh a seminal economist and in addition to her to her brilliance as a scholar she is an incredible pedagogue she is incredibly good at explaining this stuff i mean mm. as you said there's a reason you know i mean i used to say five six years ago there's there is a Facebook group which I I haven't shown up for in a long time. It was an MMT Facebook group when this was literally you could know everybody who was into this. Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was not it was not still like ten people like it was back in 1994 or whatever. But it you but you could know them like you know you would have Facebook chats with Stephanie would and would show up and Warren would show up and uh, and Pavlina would show up. Mm. And my position five, six years ago was that that when we were discussing how do we do this, how do we start advocating and spreading the word, was Stephanie should just say stuff and the rest of us should just repeat it. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Just like amplify what Stephanie does because she's just so freaking good at it and she's prolific. So what was the specific thing in this paper that she said regarding oh, no, it was, it was or whatever it was. It was all about how to present it. It was the whole thing. She was talking about, she was, she was, it was Warren. Had ref- I forget specifically why Warren had said I should talk to her. Uh-huh. I think it was because I was trying, I was, I wanted to, yeah, that's what it was. So I called up, I, I was telling Warren that I was at the department of labor and that I had, I was now working for the commissioner of department of labor. So I could approach, I could approach that. And I wanted to see if I could get some traction and get some support so that I could start working on implementing the job guarantee here in Connecticut, like developing an implementation of it. Right. And what I realized Mm -hmm. out of that to refer to, to the, towards the beginning of our conversation was that was not the way to do it. The bureaucracy was not the way to deliver it. Right. Right. So, but that's, that's where this all got started. So I had moved, I had come over to the department of labor. I was working around workforce and I was working around wage enforcement. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to start to take the job guarantee as a policy idea and develop an implementation of it. And that's how I ended up talking to Stephanie because Warren said, well, it so happens that there, that Stephanie and, and 
and Pavlina and Scott and a couple other people are working on a paper they're going to be publishing soon. So you should just call Stephanie. That's how I got talking to Stephanie. And then Stephanie broke it down for me. And it was just amazing how thoroughly she understood the politics of it. Like she understood it end to end. It was really something. Well, you said she's a good teacher and, you know, of course. Yeah, she's got the, she's got all three of those things. It's really amazing. Well, her her book and in her Angry Birds, uh, Angry Birds vision of deficit, Angry Birds of Deficit is what I call it. I mean, that's not the exact name. Um, mm-hmm. Her video or our lecture. How Well, let me ask you first. How did you, uh, what's your thoughts about the book, your your experience with the book? Well, I bought, I honestly, I didn't read the book. I bought the book because I want to have her, her book. Okay. Okay. At some point I will sit down and read it, but you know, I came to this from a different direction. So to me, it's, it would be entertaining, but I'm, and and I might, I might pick up some stuff, but I've acted like I read her first paper. I think it's white. I think it's Levy white paper. And when she was still stepping back, it was her original examiner.
Today, I talk with Chris McCardle on the politics and pitfalls of implementing the MMT-designed job guarantee. Chris was politically active in the 2000s and an early and strong supporter of then-Democratic gubernatorial candidate Daniel Malloy. Chris later joined the Malloy administration during its two terms, conducting policy research and providing public and governmental relations around economic development, housing, and workforce. While traveling around Connecticut in 2010 with candidate Malloy, Chris encountered other candidates at all levels of government. One of them was running for the then open seat for U.S. Senate, first attempting to earn the Democratic nomination and ultimately running as a third party candidate in the general election. What set this candidate apart was his unique policy proposals highlighted by the promise of a job for anyone who wanted one. That candidate was Warren Mosler. After the campaign ended, Chris joined Warren and his son for lunch, noting the fancy car out front that Warren himself had built. Warren bought lunch, and Chris bought two of Warren's books, The Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds of Economic Policy and Soft Currency Economics. The two stayed in touch, and Chris was introduced to the then still small community of economists and students of MMT. He soon spent many hours reading MMT papers and posts and learning key concepts like Wynne Godley's sectoral balance identity, Abba Lerner's functional finance, and George Friedrich Knapp's state theory of money. In April 2018, MMT economists released their paper, Public Service Employment, A Path to Full Employment. Chris used the paper as an opportunity to introduce the possibility of a job guarantee to the commissioner and staff of the Connecticut Department of Labor. Chris praises the authors of the paper for its acknowledgement of political realities. An example is how it considers existing prevailing rate structures in a number of states, including Connecticut. This is important because it avoids unnecessarily alienating the building trades unions, therefore increasing their chances that they will support the proposal. He's also proud to have made a small contribution to this particular aspect of the proposal. The other concept Chris and I discuss regarding the job guarantee is one I struggled to grasp during the episode, but became more clear of in follow-up conversations. The job guarantee as designed by MMT economists would be a federal law that is federally funded and locally designed and administered. This means that state, county, and municipal governments would design the implementation they deem appropriate for their communities. Chris remembers well the pitfalls and potential abuse of a government-run jobs program such as those endured by the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, or CEDA, of 1973. One of those pitfalls is the stigma associated to having a, quote, government job. What Chris recommends is that the actual hiring and management of those jobs be placed into the hands of, for example, nonprofits and public-private partnerships. As is already the case in areas such as for the provisioning of social services and construction of housing, governmental and quasi-governmental entities would provide professional selection and oversight while avoiding creation of large new government workforce and bureaucracy. Finally, it should be noted that in Chris's state of Connecticut, there is no county government, implying that the job guarantee would most likely be delivered at the state level. Where I live in New Jersey, county governments are more prominent. This episode is part one of a two-part conversation. In part two, 
Chris and I discuss online activism and also the concept of truth versus theory. MMT is not the truth about economics as I have admittedly often said. It's simply the most convincing economic theory to both me and Chris. Truth is an inherently subjective term and using it is therefore not conducive to encouraging others to look into MMT, let alone be convinced by it. We end part two by giving a rundown of our lists of important sources that we find valuable to pass on to others interested in learning more about MMT, both from an introductory point of view and for those wanting more detail. Many links to those sources and more can be found in the show notes. Now on to my conversation with Chris McCardle.